Welcome back to a new episode of the Emerging Market Retail Podcast. My name is Camilo Mora. My name is Rafael Escamilla. And my name is Simone Bobos. <laughs> Very good, guys. And today we're going to talk about uh, a relevant topic for the developing world. So, uh, Rafa, perhaps you can uh, give us some figures and, and describe what we are talking about today. Of course, yes. So today we will be talking about the 6 million refugees that we have uh, across the world. Um, so, and specifically, we will be talking about in-kind assistance versus cash assistance, uh, which is a strategic decision that humanitarian organizations face. To provide some context, um, today, the vast majority of assistance that, that is provided by these organizations uh, is given in-kind. Um, so this accounts for 94% of the 25 billion dollars of humanitarian assistance that it is given uh, worldwide, with the remaining 6% being given through cash assistance. Um, however, there has been a very substantial and important trend uh, with the growth of, um, you know, threefold in recent years, in the last four or five years, um, with regards to the use of cash assistance uh, instead of in-kind assistance. And uh, today we have a very cool uh, episode to to discuss this. So, uh, Simone, perhaps you can say a few words about our guest. Yeah, so today we have a very special guest, uh, Professor Teresila Kossi. Um, she is from Greece and she did uh, field research there in three different refugee camps. Uh, she conducted 30 interviews, she did observations uh, among humanitarian organizations. Uh, she consulted different documents, so she has very much to say based on her practical knowledge. And on top of that, she also did modeling work. So I think I'm really looking forward to this episode. And uh, let's continue. All right. So uh, welcome back to another episode of the Emerging Market Retail Podcast. Uh, today, we have a great expert with us. This is uh, Professor Telesila Katsi from uh, she's a, an assistant professor of operations management at the Fisher College of Business uh, at the Ohio State University. Uh, so Telesila received her PhD from the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University after spending some time uh, working as a research assistant at the INSEAD Humanitarian Research Group. Uh, Telesila combines both uh, field research, uh, really cool field research with rigorous analytical methods to uh, study, broadly speaking, challenges faced by nonprofit organizations. And uh, today we'll be discussing about retailing in the context of refugee camps. So, um, so let's just uh, dive right in. Uh, the first question that we wanted to ask Telesila is how you became interested in this really cool topic. Uh, we know that this, you know, uh, coming from Greece, this also, um, you know, the context of your paper has perhaps some personal connections um, to, you know, uh, topics from, from your home country. And we know that you also spent time on the field observing the operations and trying to understand what were some of the challenges to inform your modeling choices in the paper, which I think is really, really cool and, and something that we all should be doing uh, more. So uh, perhaps you can tell us, you know, what were mo the most insightful aspects from these experiences and how this, did this all contribute to uh, developing your paper? Yes, of course. Uh, thank you, Rafael, for the kind introduction. It's my pleasure to be talking about my research today. So to give you a little bit of context, um, since the paper is really 
Um, studying a, an issue that happened back in 2016, 2017, uh, if you think about what were the news headlines back then, about more than a million refugees arrived in Greece between 2015 and March 2016. And this is when really the Syrian crisis provoked a mass uh, movement of people to Europe. And moreover, they, this type of movement has followed by hundreds of thousands since then. So it hasn't just stopped. It just the, the sheer volume of it, of it was just so much uh, back in 2016. So because the situation in the Greek islands was becoming really ha hard to manage for the Greek government, they decided to move some of these groups to the mainland. And this is really when I started listening from family members, from friends, how they were getting involved into trying to help these people resettle, uh, provide them with uh, different types of assistance. So this is a huge operation and researchers in OM, we are really equipped with the right tools and skills uh, to help the organizations provide help in a way that can benefit all the stakeholders in this ecosystem. And I will explain a little bit um, why understanding who are the stakeholders is important. So actually, that was the first part from my field research, um, that it was really cool. It was trying to understand who is really affected and how. So, for example, until that point, uh, there was, uh, of course, a lot of discussion about the impact of help, the impact of assistance to the refugees themselves, um, but also to, to the humanitarian organizations, since they were the actors who were making the decisions. And there was also some discussion about how the host communities in different countries were um, accepting the relocation of the refugees uh, into their space. But something that was really missing was um, in, a, in certain types of markets, how the local retailers uh, were going to be affected or was there anything we could do to make the kind of impact on the retailers to be able to, all the benefits to be able to transfer to the refugees and to the host community. So first of all, my field research helped me understand who were the stakeholders. So it brought in the focus, the local retailers in my context. Also understanding that these were not entry points because as I explained to you, the refugees were moved after a government's decision. So um, the size of the population was kind of predetermined by the government. Moreover, the supply was not a constraint because we're talking about Greece, so a, a relatively well-developed market uh, in, certain, uh, in certain places competitive as well. But in the locations where the refugees were decided to uh, be moved, actually it was the local retailers who were holding uh, market power. So in each of these communities, basically there was a single retailer where both the uh, Greeks and the newly uh, newly uh, resettled refugees were able to buy products. So I think these three or four points uh, were the main ones that uh, my field research was able to contribute in my modeling choices and um, be included in the paper. Thank you. Um, and like we're very interested also to learn a bit more like how do those humanitarian organizations, how do they decide on what help is needed by the refugees and how do they decide 
what kind of products they need to supply. Can you explain a bit more on this? Right. Um, thank you, Simona. That's that's a great question. And um, we really have to think about the different the different timing decisions that these organizations take, which is, for example, for my paper, I focused exactly uh, at the timing where the refugees have al already moved to a new place. And now the organization has to make the decision, this certain group of people, how are they going to uh, be helped in the best possible way? So taking it a step back, if we think about the moment that the refugees are just entering a country, there is, you know, urgency to fulfill our, all their basic needs and all the expertise of these humanitarian organizations over the last hundred years has been how to provide them with in-kind assistance. And in-kind assistance is food, hygiene, shelter, so any type of, um, you know, soap, shampoos, um, blankets, any time of um, the basic necessities we all need to survive. But as the organizations transition these people to stay longer uh, in a country, now they have to figure out um, how can they let them make their own choices? Because for a person, for an individual, is uh, very detrimental to their psychology to feel like they are being helped on a constant basis. So some of the refugees that I interviewed, they shared with me how bad it felt to be queuing lines over and over during a single day. And basically the humanitarian organizations wanted to and want uh, in most situations to um, get away from this type of model. And so the gas assistance has a benefit because it helps the individuals, so the refugees in making their own choices. But also it is considered an effective type of assistance because it benefits the local economies because this money at the end, they're gonna be spending the local market. So they have also an advantage of, um, you know, turning the host communities, um, having a more positive um, over, you know, view of this new group of people that are relocated in their space. And that's why humanitarian, uh, humanitarian organizations want to provide more gas assistance. But lately, um, I think back in 2020, 2021, there was about 20% of the total assistance provided as money and the rest 80% uh, was uh, in-kind. And this is a huge increase from like five years ago, where only a third of it, basically so about you know 5% or 7% was provided as cash. So there has been a huge boost, and that's because the humanitarian organizations realized the, um, the need for gas assistance, and also the donors uh, promoted because they feel it's a more transparent, maybe a more dignified way to help individuals. Yeah, I think it's it's very beneficial, of course, to provide cash given all the, the arguments that you just provided. But in your paper, you also described that it comes with a lot of challenges and that there's an obvious trade-off for providing this cash instead of the in-kind goods. What exactly are those challenges that uh, yeah, the help humanitarian organizations face in providing cash assistance? Right, correct. So let's think about it. If a humanitarian organization provides gas assistance, but basically does not really understand the market conditions. So in my context, 
we had a monopolistic retailer who could increase the prices because um, they would see a, an increase in their demand the moment that the refugees were settled in their location. And so in, the, in this case, the retailer will increase the prices, price inflation will impact not just the refugees, but also the host community. And so basically the humanitarian organization by providing gas assistance will uh, harm both the local residents and the refugees. And so prices rise for everyone and refugees at the end receive fewer goods because they have less purchasing power with the same amount of gas that they are provided. So an important problem that the organization, humanitarian organizations face is to provide gas assistance to their beneficiaries in such an environment where local mar market power exists. Um, and be able to benefit not just the refugees, but also the host community. The host community includes both the retailer and the residents. So in all previous literature, um, specifically in economics, um, researchers have studied the conditions under which in competitive markets, providing cash can be actually be beneficial. But here, um, because of my field research, we looked at an environment where the, the retailer holds market power. Mm. And so that's uh, the contribution of our research. Thank you. Yeah, so, so Telesila, are, are you suggesting that uh, these humanitarian organizations should provide assistance in two stages? First, like in kind for a certain period of time, you know, and then uh for the long-term stay in the, the the refugee camps then um uh to provide uh cash this is what you're saying so um this is not the uh two different times it's not really part of my paper i only focus mm -hmm. on the later part but what i observed um in the on the field on the ground the problem there was first of all they did it, they had to verify who had arrived they had to uh, figure out how to feed them as fast as possible so they weren't able to set up um, the cash assistance in a way that they could track it and be transparent to their donors and so they had other issues mm -hmm. um, which um, hinder them from providing cash assistance okay and okay. in in most like you know, urgent phase of this type of uh, situations, I have always seen in-kind assistance being provided. Okay, very good. So um, in your paper, you propose this uh, two cash uh, assistance policies, right? So mm -hmm. one hand, we have the price index cap and the other ones like the, the price dependent uh, cash uh, assistance policy, right? So mm -hmm. perhaps uh, you can explain a little bit how those like two cash assistance policies uh, work and how they ensure that all the involved parties, all the stakeholders that you that you studied, uh, are better off when, when in-kind assistance is provided. Sure, yeah. So let's first focus uh, on the humanitarian organization's problem. So the humanitarian organization wants to benefit, uh, wants to maximize the utility for the refugees. And they have these two types of assistance they can provide. They just have to decide on the right mix of in-kind and gas assistance. So the issue is that while they're making this decision, they're also affecting the retailer's pricing decision. 
right, in this environment, uh, which in turn now affects the refugees' utility. So if the humanitarian organization provides only kind assistance and no cash, then the refugees have no flexibility in purchasing whatever goods they satisfy uh, their own preferences. On the other hand, if we allocate some of the budget on cash assistance, it benefits immediately the retailer, even if the price remains unchanged. However, as I explained before, the retailer might, might increase the price, which impacts both the refugees and the local residents. So having this as a base, now let me try to explain how the two uh, different price policies can uh, provide a win-win situation uh, for all the stakeholders involved. So I will focus more on the price dependent cash assistance because the price in uh, the price cap uh, index cap works. Uh, the mechanics are a little bit different, but the uh, result is the same. And because the price index cap is about price regulation, I think the other one, the price dependent cash assistance, is one that um, is more basically easier to to apply in um, the environments that I studied. So under this, both these types of policies. Uh, Let's focus on the cash assistance, price-dependent cash assistance. What happens is that the amount of cash assistance depends on, on the retail price index. Um, so we build the retail price index based on a set of essential goods that the refugees uh, have. And this is where the knowledge of the humanitarian organization is very important. So if the retail price index is too high, then um, the humanitarian organization in a partnership with the government will offer less gas assistance to the refugees. And this is what will eventually curb the retailer's market power. So in a way, the amount of the gas assistance can act as a lever to um, set the desirable prices from the retailer. So we do not... Um, obliges the retailer to follow a specific price policy, but we basically incentivize them through the amount of the cash assistance that we offer um, to the refugees. And to explain a little bit how, uh, in terms of implementation, this could work, the idea is that the humanitarian organization, before even the refugees move to a certain location, will announce such a policy and will consult with the retailer. And the retailer is the one who can freely choose whatever prices will be provided for these goods to the refugees. But once now the chosen prices um, are verified by the humanitarian organization, then the humanitarian organization will decide on the amount of the gas assistance. Uh, to the refugees, and we'll have also the help of the government to verify that the retailer will stick to the original commitment for the prices, uh, while also the humanitarian organization sticks to the price index menu that they have originally offered to, um, to the retailer for the refugees. So in, in a sense, having the government participate um, together with the humanitarian organization, the role of the government, government is really to monitor and make sure uh, that both parties, the retailer and the humanitarian organization, follow their commitments. Okay, but wait, so, so just monitor or also enforce? Because there are like the, those are two mm -hmm. different like, like yeah. things, you know? So, so what's, what's your take on this? What would you suggest? Yeah, so no, there is no enforcement in the price-dependent cash assistance. Is really, so the enforcement would be that um, 
in the sense that, for example, if any of the commitments is not followed, then there will be some measures taken. But there is no enforcement in the sense of a price cap where you have to you know, um, fix a price level and basically control, regulate the market. Mm -hmm. So it's a different type of, it's a more, um, say, a more uh, indirect enforcement. Um, and it's, it's easier to understand because we can basically leave the market operate on its own. But just because of the price menu, um, we can align the incentives of all these different actors. Yeah, I think this idea is very interesting. And I'm wondering, like, you've spoken to so many practitioners on your field trips. And are they actually also planning to implement this idea? And if they are doing so, how are they, how are they going to do this? Yeah, well, I mean, that's uh, that's really a work in progress. So what really happens in this type of environments is that um, policies change, governments change, um, and it's and even the turnover, the staff turnover in some of these humanitarian organizations is so high that the people that I interviewed, they don't work anymore in the same positions. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, th that happened even during the time I was doing my research, uh, let alone now. So th the discussion, at least in Greece, um, sorry for that. Uh, the discussion really in Greece has moved um, beyond the cash assistance implementation um, question. And this is because, because of how the donors uh, basically incentivize the cash assistance. So what happened was that the donors were giving a certain amount of money to the humanitarian organizations uh, who could then allocate them to, to cash and in-kind assistance. But after, I think, a period of two years, most of these donors kind of phased out their programs because the um, the crisis <laughs> basically was somehow resolved. So, and it, the truth is that some of these refugees did finally resettle to other countries, so they didn't stay in Greece. So the implementation part, um, I think now that we have the mechanism is something that I discussed with organizations to maybe implement in a different uh, occasion and not um, in the in, during, you know, in the Greek environment. Yeah, I mean, I can also imagine that this would be a huge undertaking and it's it's really complex. I, I was thinking, for instance, of, um, you know, how the feedback would reach the, the retailers themselves and how they would become aware of this such that they can implement mm -hmm. it into their routine. So I think just thinking of the implementation, this would require a lot of effort and a lot of, you know, explaining and, and patiently walking everyone through how this is going to work and it's a it's a different paper right it's it's a different uh a different <laughs> yes. project uh altogether but yeah uh, that's that that's definitely true that um implementation is you know comes with its own challenges and the truth is that the humanitarian organizations were involving the retailers on some aspect uh during this whole operation so they were informing them of um because they wanted to make sure that the retailers together with the rest of the host community 
was positive towards the refugees being relocated to their place. And to do so, um, they formed the retailers of how many people would um, be moved in their location, what type of uh, preference they have in terms of food, especially. This is uh, a really big question. And so they kind of helped them prepare for the increase in demand. Um, and that's why I think that implementing the price-dependent cash assistance on top of what they were doing already wouldn't be that difficult uh, operationally speaking. Um, it will be just an added layer of what type of uh, communication they should have with the retailer. It would be more structured, okay. right? Because they would have to come up with a price index in advance and be able to communicate that in the right yeah. way to the retailer. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I want to continue on this line and, and really talking about, you know, your engagement with the, uh, with the practitioners, because I think that is one of the really cool aspects of the paper. Um, and I mean, you, you, you talked about some, you know, important features of the context that you're investigating, um, you know, which are the, uh, the fact that, you know, this is not an entry point, right? So mm -hmm. the challenges there are, are drastically different. And you've already talked a little bit about that. Um, and, and then the, the second one is, you know, the fact that this is a, a monopolistic retailer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that really um, shapes up the, the dynamics in the, in the market. Um, so, I mean, we, we, we've been thinking about this and, and we wanted to get your opinion on, you know, um, how this uh, reality would shift in those, if, if those two assumptions were different, right? Or, or if those two elements uh, were somehow different. Um, uh, so again, we're talking about the entry points and the, the retailers holding a monopolistic uh, position. Maybe this also relates to the literature that you've already alluded to, uh, which has already uh, spoken to that, but I was wondering whether you could say a few words about that. Yeah, sure. So yes, about the, uh, let's take first the assumption of the retailers uh, monopoly power. So this one, the way it has been studied already is in a competitive market setting, for example, I think um, the paper that comes to my mind was about Jordan and about Lebanon. Uh, what happened in that case was the market was basically able to push the prices down because of the competitive nature uh, between uh, different retailers. And so we didn't see a price inflation or if there was a price inflation, it was only temporary and then it kind of phased out. So um, there wasn't such an issue um, about the price inflation. The problem there was how can you ensure supply and basically how can you trigger out if the effect was coming out of supply constraint or because of the demand increase. And really, um, there, there hasn't been an answer in that when both features are included in a model. So the cool aspect with uh, our paper was that we focused um, on a setting with no supply constraint, and we were able to show that when there is a demand increase, um, we can see these different dynamics in the market. Now, talking about um, the feature of the entry points, so in the Greek islands, for example, uh, some of the humanitarian organizations that I interviewed were also involved in the like, kind of initial step of helping the refugees. And uh, really there, the problem was demand uncertainty. So every day they will get um, varying you know, numbers of people entering uh, the borders. And 
the problem was really um, even if they were prepared with some kind of um, in-kind assistance, what could they do uh, in the case that they were running out of it? Because in the island still, even if the market, I would say, is a little bit more competitive than in the places that I visited, still, um, I don't think they can handle basically a 200% increase of demand in one day. So the organizations were not basically um, able to fulfill that uh, excess of demand. And what they did was to rely on the on the army and basically the uh, the government, Greek government, Greek governmental agencies um, to fulfill the needs. But this is really not a long-term uh, solution. So um, both of these assumptions are critical for um, the game theory model that I built, and changing any of them would really, you know, change how the incentives can be aligned. Super, super interesting. And I, I mean, I, you've already talked a little bit about it, but I was wondering whether you could tell us, you know, um, whether this discussion is also ongoing in other um, places around the world. So I know you uh, also, um, uh, given the, the fact that you spent time at INSEAD, which is, of course, uh, you know, a, a great place to be if you if you want to, to learn about uh, humanitarian operations. Um, and and you know your engagement with other um, other humanitarian organizations in in different settings. I, I I was wondering whether you could say a few words about the challenges that they're facing. What is the what are some of the exciting conversations that are taking place uh, around refugee camps? Uh, and and you know what, what what is what can we expect to be coming in the future? Yes, um, the. There has been an increase in cash assistance, so I have heard from all kinds of uh, humanitarian organizations um, explaining how this is not gonna, um, you know, go. They they will not go back to in-kind assistance, uh, at least um, without examining whether they could provide cash assistance um, mix together with in-kind. In terms of um, Interesting initiatives um, I have heard, um, at least with my, I have a recent collaboration with the World Food Program, and I know that in some of the big refugee camps uh, that uh, they have in around Africa, they are allowing the refugees basically to become the retailer. So inside the refugee community, now it is the refugees who need to procure uh, goods from the local market, and they are the ones who decide um, the prices. And so this is um, really exciting for them because it also allows the refugees to learn new skills, to be able to take even more, um, even more power over uh, their own lives and become more dignified. And a second initiative that um, it, it didn't happen in Greece, I haven't heard about it anywhere in Europe, but I know that it exists in other contexts, is uh, about uh, cash for work. So it's basically conditioning the cash assistance uh, on refugees based on what I, not what I, but how much they have worked, uh, for example, during a, a month as a period. 
So they could do different types of work inside the refugee camps, or if the country and the regulations allow it, they could also work outside in the host community. And then basically the humanitarian organization provides them with um, a cash payment, uh, which uh, reflects the type of work that they have done. So these are um, the two most recent ones that I have heard about. Um, but really, uh, in the environment where CAS is unconditional, um, I, from my conversations with humanitarian organizations, it's always, their, um, it's always in their interest to be able to provide a win-win solution. Uh, so, for example, they want the refugees to gain the power of meeting their individual needs. They want also the retailers to be able and sell more products and at least um, uh, be able to get as much profit as they would if they could increase the prices. Uh, and But also make sure that uh, the local res residents are not um, harmed by you know, higher prices. So uh, for the humanitarian organizations, it's really important to keep a balance. And even with the two other initiatives that I mentioned, um, they want, they strive to be able to uh, have such a balance. Very good. Telesila, thank you. Thank you for uh, joining us today in, in this episode, uh, a truly insightful conversation. And uh, well, guys, if you enjoyed what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our uh, podcast on your favorite platform and leave us uh, a review. Uh, we will love uh, hearing uh, from you. And also be sure to follow us on social media to stay updated on our uh, latest episodes. Thank you so, uh, so much for your for your time, Telesila. Perfect. Thank you, Camilo. Thank you, Thank Rafael. You. <laughs> Thank you, Sibola. This podcast is brought to you by Tilburg University.